This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching through the book of Esther, and today we're in chapter 4. No one likes a crisis. They cause us stress, shake our confidence, and often bring heartache and suffering. Crises have been with us since the fall in the Garden of Eden. But here's the good news. God uses crises to help us grow our spiritual muscles. God uses crises to equip us to help others when they encounter hardship. And God uses crises to remind us that we need Him and His help to survive in this broken world. We'll learn more about God behind the scenes in human crises as we listen to the first half of today's message from Pastor Pierre. Well, open your Bibles to the book of Esther, chapter 4. If you have your Bibles with you, we're going to continue our verse-by-verse study of that book. We've heard enough of the story of that book now to realize that nothing in the narrative is a product of coincidence. In fact, the Remember, the overarching theme of the story is the providence of God, the God who works behind the scenes, whose name is not mentioned, but whose hands are all over the story here. His sovereignty is clear, His love and His providential care for His people. Between chapters 1 through 4, the chapter we will study today, uh, we see the predicament of God's people, and then from the next chapter on until the end of the story, we'll see the protection of God's people. But instances of human crisis in the lives of the main characters happen by divine design. We, we, we've concluded that by studying the book. Just like every trying time you face is also by divine design, even the ones caused by your own bad decisions. Because you see, while you are responsible for making decisions, in fact, the Bible calls us, calls upon us to make the right decisions. When we make bad decisions, that does nothing to frustrate God's sovereign plans. Uh, God is behind the scenes of your life, orchestrating all the details to fulfill His good and perfect plan in your life. Just like He orchestrates everything here behind the scenes in the lives of the people that we've met in the study of the book of Esther here. So God enlists crises to solidify our faith. We know that for a fact, not only in the story of Esther here, but for example in Romans 5. Verses 3 through 5, we read, We exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So in the first chapter of the book of Esther here, featured the arrogance of Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes in the history books. The second featured the enthronement of Esther. The third, the hatred of Haman. And now in chapter 4, we're going to see the mediation of Mordecai. Now, And in this story here, we will see that God wants to develop in us muscles, spiritual muscles, I call them, so that we can be better equipped to live in a fallen world. And God uses the mechanism of tribulation and trials in adversity in order to develop those spiritual muscles in our lives. Now, the same is true for the physical realm. You remember those of you who go to the gym, or those of you who used to go to the gym, 
Know that your muscles will develop through adversity. You subject your muscles through difficulty in order for them to grow and develop. The same is true for our spiritual lives, and God shows us very clearly and beautifully in the narrative here in chapter 4 of the book of Esther, the spiritual muscles he wants us to develop. And he does that by showing us what exactly what he did in the lives of the protagonists, Esther and Mordecai, and obviously the uh, Jewish people of Persia during that time. Now, first of all, let's look at, uh, I, I want to show you those muscles. Let's look at the first one. I'm going to call this in peril, exercise perseverance. So when you are in peril, God wants you to exercise perseverance. Listen to verses 1 through 3, uh, chapter 4 of the book of Esther. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. He went as far as the king's gate, for no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. In each and every province where the command and decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. Now, so that we get situated contextually here, let's just remember a few details from chapter 3. This guy, Haman, the antagonist of the story, convinced the king to write an edict justifying or mandating, in this case, the destruction of all the Jews, the first attempted holocaust in history. And he did this because Mordecai refused to bow to him. You remember that when he was put in the place of second in command, Haman was, he demanded that everybody bow to him. Now, there's nothing wrong with honoring a dignitary, but that wasn't the case that Haman demanded. He demanded to be worshipped. And Mordecai, as a Jew, said very clearly in Hebrew, no way, Jose. And as a result of that, his civil disobedience here, then Haman convinced the king to write that edict. Now, Mordecai realized that his civil disobedience, again, justified in God's eyes, prompted this edict sponsored by Haman, and therefore he experienced grief, probably induced by feelings of guilt. In his mind, probably he thought, man, what did I do? I'm trying to be faithful to God, and perhaps even my own people now are going to retaliate against me, and look at what I have done. And maybe even self-pity a little bit, saying, why me, Lord, why now? Why are you allowing this in my life? We're very familiar with that. We sometimes say that to God, right? But when he realized the gravity of the situation, he activated the typical Jewish public display of agony. These are customs we're not familiar with except when we read about them in the Bible. Tearing his own clothing illustrated his heart being ripped from him. That that is what he's communicating publicly. He says, my heart is being taken away from me. The sackcloth represented a complete disregard for comfort or even dignity. And the ashes communicated the prospect of ruin, a desire really to be buried, a desire, what he's communicating publicly is, I want to die. Death is better than this. I want to go back to being in the earth. This is a level of melancholy that is unusual in our culture. Again, we are familiar with them because we read about this custom in other parts of the Bible. But Jacob, you will remember, was the first one to demonstrate his grief publicly. It happened when his sons told him that Joseph was dead in Genesis 37, verse 34, which turned out to be a lie, but still Jacob demonstrated this level of public agony. In some occasions, occasions these practices also signaled the desire to repent and to uh, turn back to the Lord. Such was the case when the Ninevites heard that God was going to judge their city 
And they weren't believers. They weren't followers of Yahweh, but you remember that they tore their clothes in repentance, according to Jonah 3, verse 5. Daniel did the same thing in the context of national repentance. In fact, the prophet explained what he was doing in Daniel 9, verses 3 through 4. He said, I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord God and confessed. So he is confessing the sins of his people and at the same time demonstrating this level of agony and repentance by fasting, by wearing sackcloth and ashes. And back in the story here of Mordecai, by following the biblical and cultural precedent for public mourning, the Persian Jews of Esther's time signaled that they were willing to go back to the God they had presumably abandoned. Because remember, the context here is that they were exiled in the Persian Empire. They were taken there by the Babylonians. The the Medo-Persian Empire took over. And then Cyrus allowed them to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and the temple, the books of Esther and Nehemiah. Some of the Jews decided to stay in Susa, in the capital of the Persian Empire, and presumably abandon God and say, well, this is the God of our forefathers. God is the God of over there, not over here. This is my grandparents' religion type of a thing. But now they're demonstrating their willingness at least to, to go back to God by demonstrating, by following Mordecai with this public demonstration of grief. And what we learn here is that few events work better than a national crisis to bring people back to God. You remember the days of 9-11. Those of you who were alive at that time, people flocked to churches the same weekend that that happened. At least less than a few weeks, there was no revival in the nation. But when people are confronted with their mortality and the frailty of life, they at least tend to look at God. The same thing happened during the COVID pandemic. People who I haven't heard, I hadn't heard from in a long time, all of a sudden contacted me and said, what is this all about? Is this the end of the world? People ask me questions about relating current events to the book of Revelation. At least there was a renewed interest in the things of God. Again, because people are confronted with the brevity of human life. And that is exactly what these people here are experiencing, the Jews of of Persia during that time. Which tells us that our inability to control circumstances provides excellent opportunities to turn to the one who can part the Red Sea, the one who can deliver Daniel from the lion's den, to restore sight to the blind, to raise the dead, or to intervene non-miraculously in our favor. Remember, the book of Esther talks about the non-miraculous providence of God, which is a lot more common today and really throughout history than miracles. Miracles are by nature rare events. And we tend to confuse the unlikely with the impossible. And we, we label everything a miracle. So if you find a parking spot in a crowded mall during Christmas season, you say, great, this is a miracle. Not really. There is a probability you would find a parking spot there. It was providentially that God opened the door for you to park there. No doubt about that. If your favorite team makes it to the Super Bowl, you may say it's a miracle. It may not be. It's certainly divine intervention if you're talking about the Los Angeles Chargers, for example. But the point is, God works providentially, non-miraculously, today more often than He does miraculously. And the book of Esther tells us that it's all about His providential care through circumstances. Mordecai added loud wailing to his demonstration of grief. This guy is throwing a tantrum. He, he's causing a scene in front of the palace there. And evident, evidently, 
Persian law limited this practice to outside the royal complex. It's not hard to understand why. Remember back in chapter 1 that we determined that the word that they used to describe, the Persian word used to describe the royal palace was the word that we turned into the English term paradise. So obviously the king says, nope, there's no sadness allowed in my paradise. So Jews from all over the kingdom followed along with Mordecai and fasted also, indicating that physical sustenance was a secondary concern. Again, this is not hard to understand. Some of you perhaps may have gone through such a moment of distress in your life. Perhaps you're going through one right now where you think, man, I'm not even concerned about my physical sustenance. I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about how to get through this thing. So that is what they're doing here. They're, they're fasting, they're seeking God, they're persevering during this time of peril, seeking God, which is a great thing. And we learn this from the life of Mordecai. He, he demonstrates for us the type of spiritual muscle that we're supposed to develop and work, work out really in moments of crises. Seeking God in perseverance, turning to Him because there is no one else to turn to. But let's look at the second spiritual muscle that God wants us to develop that he shows us through the story here. Not only are we to exercise perseverance in peril, but also in hardship, we are to enlist hope. In hardship, enlist hope. Verses 4 through 8. Then Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came and told her, and the queen writhed in great anguish. And she sent garments to clothe Mordecai that he might remove his sackcloth from him, but he did not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak from the king's eunuchs, whom the king had appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. So Hathak went out to Mordecai to the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict, which had been issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show Esther and inform her and to order her to go into the king to implore his favor and to plead with him for her people. So remember, Esther doesn't appear in chapter 3. The author removes her from the stage and now places her back in the middle of chapter 4 here. She is apparently unaware of this edict. She learns about the commotion. She knows what's going on. She sees it. And when she learned about the commotion, she also displayed great distress because she knows what this is all about. She is a Jew, a Jewess. So she knows what the, what the public display of grief is all about. She knows something serious is unfolding here. She just doesn't know at the beginning of this paragraph here what this is all about. So she ordered her servants to go comfort Mordecai. And she sent garments to him. And the reason is simple, to allow him to go to the palace. She's sending through her bodyguard clothes to Mordecai so that Mordecai can come back and personally report to her the reason for all the commotion. And again, she probably suspected a serious situation was about to unfold because presumably she knew about the custom of sackcloth and ashes and the fasting and the loud wailing that was going on. Now, it's interesting that Mordecai knew details that Esther didn't. So she wasn't aware of the edict until this time. And Mordecai knew exactly the amount of money that Haman proposed to the king for the bounty and the, the, the heads of the Jews here, which means that Mordecai had access to, to all of that. He is high up in the king's gate. Remember, this is an official position. Being at the king's gate doesn't mean you were there asking for money. It meant you were a part of a, a some sort of a, a high up group of people who had some influence with the royal court. 
And he also knew, for that reason, that the other people of the empire, the non-Jews, would not help them. Because that was a dangerous proposition. To not go along with the royal edict here would be to be persecuted. So there was no neutrality here. In other words, the Jews had no allies. They had no one to turn to because to help them would be signing their death, their own death sentence. They would eventually face the same fate as the Jews, which again happened by divine design. Keep that in mind. Nothing here is a coincidence. Nothing here is a product of human cleverness, but this is by divine design. In other words, the Lord wanted them to know that they should turn to no one else because there was no one else to turn to. In other words, health, wealth, and position became utterly useless Just like the proverbial millionaire who got lost in the woods holding on to his briefcase containing $10 million. There's nothing that his wealth can do for him there. He became the next meal from a lion. In the story of Esther, the lion is a government official. Times have changed. But even today, governments around the world offer little incentive or even encouragement for people to protect followers of Christ. In fact, they are hostile sometimes themselves. We still remember the discussion here, not too long ago, about the essential status of churches. Remember those? A couple years ago, there was a debate on whether or not churches should be considered essential business and stay open during the pandemic. Now, uh, let me reveal this to you now. I wasn't shocked at all when I heard that some governors ordered the shutdown of houses of worship while allowing casinos and strip clubs to remain open. I, I expect that. We shouldn't expect to have favor from the world. Now, according to Romans 13, government officials have a responsibility before God to promote good and to punish evil. And because they're flip-flopping that, they're, have to, they're going to have to answer to God one day. But Scripture is clear to us that we shouldn't expect favor from the world. And the reason, church, is not hard to find out. It is not in the interest of a fallen society to allow us to remain. You see, just like Haman told the king, it's not in the interest of the king to allow the Jews to remain. Likewise, it is not in the interest of a fallen society, a corrupt culture, to allow Christians to remain. Why, church? Because we are the ones who preach and hopefully practice holiness. We are the ones who confront sin and the nonsense that we see out there in our society. We are the ones who promote the sanctity of life. We are the ones who promote the nuclear family. We are the ones who promote and practice restoration rather than cancellation of sinners. And we are the ones who preach eternal life in Christ alone and in no other name. Do you realize how unpopular that is? to a culture out there that is sinful. We don't celebrate, but lovingly confront the depravity of our culture. Therefore, it's not hard to understand why they would say, these people shouldn't be here. Let's not give them a voice. No wonder they desire nothing more than our total silence. Or, second best for them, a complete surrender of our values, which unfortunately has been very effective in some churches. Not the case of Grace Baptist Church. While I'm still alive, we are not going to surrender our values. That's my commitment to you. It is by God's providence, and in our case, through the U.S. Constitution, that the church has not been persecuted in these shores. The church, check this out, even if, even if God removes this layer of protection within our lifetimes, we will still have a great opportunity to exercise hope in the only one who can deliver us, 
Government is not going to deliver us. We're not counting on them for that. We're not placing our trust in them. We're placing our trust in God alone. And just like God placed the Jews of Persia during that time in that situation, he may put you in a situation where you come to the conclusion that there is no one else to turn to but God. That is a great place to be. That's an advantage of the Christian life. In fact, let me ask you, have you ever been in such a situation? If you have been a believer for long enough, I assure you, you have. If not, you're going to, because that's the Christian life. You go through trials, you go through trouble, you're not exempt from adversity. No matter what some televangelists tell you, you will face grief, you will face sorrow, you will face persecution. But the point is, you are in an extremely blessed position to trust the Lord alone because He alone is your rock and your salvation. The, God, the, the Lord alone is your strong tower. Under His wings you seek refuge. No one else has the power or the divine love to get you through a crisis. And that's the key here, to get you through it. Not necessarily out, but through it so that you can develop spiritual muscles to live in a world, in a fallen world. The one that Jesus talks about and says... In this world you will have trouble, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Woe to the world, he says, for its stumbling blocks. Here's a great stumbling block in the lives of Mordecai and Esther. He instructed her to petition the king because he understood clearly that God doesn't eliminate risk when you serve him. Did you know that? If you sign up to serve God, let me tell you this, before you even considered such a proposition. When you sign up to serve God in a local church, you are signing up your death certificate, your death sentence against the world. There is a target on your back. There is no elimination of risk when you serve God. In fact, you are declaring war against the values of the world. Because you say, I don't love the world. doesn't mean you hate the, the trees. What I'm saying is the world system. And you, you live by a different set of principles. So you, there is no elimination of risk when you serve him. In fact, Mordecai knew that one of the most dangerous propositions is to pursue God's plan for your life. Everyone who decides to follow God closely will be misrepresented. You will be criticized. You will be backstabbed. You will be second-guessed, especially if you decide to serve God in the local church. Corey Ten Boone knew a little bit about that. If that name rings a bell, you'll remember the story that she paid a high price for protecting God's people. When the Nazis, during Second World, the Second World War, found out that she was hiding Jews in her house in the Netherlands, they hauled her family to a concentration camp where her father died shortly after arriving, and her sister Betsy died a few months after from the conditions there. So that's the high price for doing God's will. And that's just one example. Mordecai, therefore, enlisted hope in the true God when he ordered his beautiful cousin to implore the king. Now, he understood that circumstantially God may have put her there in that place so that she can intervene on behalf of God's people. And he understood that the Lord might use non-miraculous means through human intervention. Now, could God have used miracle? Of course he could. He has in the past. He parted the Red Sea to deliver the Jews centuries before that. But in this case, he was working circumstantially, providentially, behind the scenes, Notice something here that Mordecai did not do. 
Mordecai did not demand supernatural intervention from God. There is no, Lord, I demand a miracle type of baloney we see on TV. There is no name and claim your miracle. Blab it and grab it. There's none of that. No miracle crusades. Mordecai didn't say, well, let's go to this crusade here and see if we find deliverance there. Or, or let's buy a piece of the cross or a piece of, of the holy water. None of that. No Miracle hotline, 800 numbers. No, that would have been completely useless. They would have done nothing for them, just like it does nothing for people today other than to keep them slaves to that kind of baloney. Evidently, Mordecai understood that miracles are rare. I, I don't necessarily need a miracle here, Lord. I just need your intervention. I need you to intervene on our behalf. And he understood that God's providential deliverance would likely come from day-to-day normal circumstances that the Lord himself had orchestrated. He is behind the scenes moving the pieces of that chessboard so that his providential care will be evident for his people and his people will grow spiritual muscles. And church, God operates this way more often than he does miraculously. Again, by definition, Miracles are rare events. Let's never confuse the impossible with the improbable. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast has provided you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth With Grace.